Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. James Baldwin is a bit of the go-to voice and writer to answer our urgent questions about race relations in this country. It's over 50 years ago that he published In Another Country, one of the novels that really changed the way in which we can think about race relations in America. I sat down with Rich Blint, who's an expert on Baldwin and has been involved in the recent renaissance of Baldwin studies that dates back far longer than the Trump presidency. People have been rereading or continue to read Baldwin for a long time. Rich explained to me how Baldwin challenged America to grow up to leave its emotional adolescence, to face the fact that to be an adult in America means to know one's past, which includes the terrible past of slavery and genocide. And that this knowledge could be something that Baldwin doesn't make us comfortable about, but challenges us to take seriously. Another country is a difficult, a complicated, and an amazing book. It's also a love story in an anthem New York City as a brutal, violent, but also fantastical city. We sat down in Greenwich Village, very close to where Baldwin himself had lived over 50 years ago. And Rich explained to me how to make sense of the legacy of this giant of American letters. Welcome to Think About It. Thank you. I'm sitting here with Rich Blint in Greenwich Village at the New School. So, first of all, welcome and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Uli. It's great to talk about James Baldwin, mm-hmm. who's had a bit of a renaissance in the last couple of years. Lived from 1924 till 1987, so Baldwin spans the larger part of the 20th century. 
But there's been a revival, let's say, in interest in his work. Uh, from Tanazi Coates, Between the World and Me, Raoul Peck, the documentary I'm Not Your Negro, which is based on Baldwin's actual writings. Justin Simeon, Dear White People. It's been influenced. Barry Jenkins has just released If Beale Street Could Talk. Jasmine Ward edited a collection, The Fire, this time. So there's a lot of people. And I'm just naming people right now who we're also reading, but then there are pundits, politicians on all sides of the political spectrum who think maybe Baldwin is a key to our current racial dilemma. Why do you think there's this return to someone who you've been reading for many, many years now? I think it's evident because America has not really done the work that James Baldwin has been insisting on for all of his life, right? And so he's someone who stayed on the same message for four decades, right? And there's something about the inability of America to confront their history that makes him always relevant, right? Baldwin is not simply a prophet. He just simply understands the operations of American power. When he was dying, one of his last interviews with Richard Goldstein in The Village Voice, he announced that he was a broken record. A broken record. I mean, literally what I'm suggesting about him staying on the same song, the same message, when other folks, you know, thought him passing. What any young person can tell us, I think the New York Times said about him. And what he was saying in 84 is that he was right, number one, but number two, that no one wanted to hear it. Which goes back to what he says early in his career, Notes of a Native Son, that it's a story no American is prepared to hear. The story of the Negro in America, right? So I think the return to him now, in some ways, was fueled before all this popular cultural interest by academics who began studying him first, convening about him first in 2000 at Howard University, and then in 2007 at Queen Mary in East London, at the University of London. And then there's been all these international conferences that have happened every two years. We did one, I did one, NYU in, across the city in 2011. And you might remember that it was a whole 15-month celebration on Baldwin called the Year of James Baldwin with New York Live Arts and Bill T. Jones. I actually remember you invited me, which I was humbled and felt deeply unqualified for it. It was called Jimmy at Noon yes, it on was. Fridays. And Patricia Williams and I yes. were on a panel to yes. talk about it. I actually talked about how Baldwin, when I read it for the first time, when you in college, college okay. in, and I came to America, felt to me like a one of those tourist guides to say, sort of, this is the key to America. And I thought, oh, so this is how you have to understand America. What you're just saying is that Baldwin felt he'd been saying this to America for his whole lifetime, and people were not paying attention. And yes. I thought, well, I'm a foreigner. This is a book, one of many books. And I thought, this is a really interesting book. It tells you how America really works. Mm -hmm. And you're saying people were not quite using Baldwin as the key to understand America for 50 years. Not at all. I mean, in some ways, Americans like to stage people like Baldwin have their, have their, have their resurgences, right? As long as nothing really changes. Right, Baldwin is someone who believed in, in another country. We see this laid out in really a clear way, I think, at least. In some ways, it's clear. The novel itself, we'll talk about it some more, is a little bit uneven, but really ambitious and terribly successful. But he said, for instance, in an interview he gave with Terrence Dixon and Jack Kazan in Paris, a film called, a little-known film called Meeting the Man, James Baldwin in Paris, and he was suggesting to them, because they were there to film him, right? It's 20 years in Paris. And he's antagonistic because, like, I'm not interested in Jimmy Baldwin's Paris. And what his articulate face, his enraged, these white men from Britain, 
And there he is at the Plaza de Bastilles telling them, as they're trying to figure out how to make this film, that they're his warden, right? You know, I'm not, he says, some exotic survivor. I could be Bobby Field. I could be Angela Davis. And they go, no, you're not. You're a writer. And he corrects them over and over again. And I think that's what Americans fail to understand. In the same interview, Baldwin says something that's really powerful. He says, he says a very difficult thing to say, but he was going to say it. They finally get themselves together and land back in Buford Delaney's studio in Paris, surrounded by young kids who are in Paris, 20-year-old black students who are doing the expat thing or seeing what Chester Hampton Company were up to some decades before. And they're hanging out with Baldwin and Buford and David Baldwin himself as well. And Baldwin says, I would not be a white American for all the teen China, for all, all the oil in Texas. I wouldn't want to live with all those lies. In the same place, he says, and it is really interesting and really, I think, makes us understand why America's been dawdling so long in this racial nightmare, right? That he says, <laughs> he says that there, but he's also suggesting that I don't believe in race, I don't believe in gender, but I know what it would mean to be a black man in America at this point in that century. But so that's so, a way to hold on to that, to say he does that. Several times he says, I do not believe in he does it all there is no black and white, but no I way. know what it means to live like So that, what I call, you know, concrete abstraction, you know? So abstract because wholly invented, violently implemented, but completely made up. A modern invention. Race is not a planetary event. And I think one of the reasons why people are returning to him now is because he comes the closest to telling something, what he would say, close to the truth about the American racial experience, the American racial career. That's been so fraught because folks are so interested, as he keeps saying, in racial forgiveness, pulling themselves on to this thing called, you know, white innocence, right? And refusing what he says to grow up. So there's no historical maturity here. There's no historical encounter with the history that we've all produced and together. And there's no right? easy way to get there. I think there's a sense of people turning to Baldwin in very serious ways, in mm -hmm. very profound ways. And then there's a sense of quoting Baldwin. Mm -hmm. So easy all to do. To say, and then it ends up always on love. So always love is the answer. In some ways, Baldwin's love is not an easy answer at all. At all. Love does not begin and end the way we seem to think it does. Love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is growing up. You picked another country, which is just amazing and it's just a tremendous book and I think I read it for the first time probably 30 years ago mm -hmm. and I remember it as being kind of a troubled book and a troubling book mm. and having these intense characters uh, so we're sitting here in Greenwich Village so we can talk about just for a moment what the book is about so who's in the book it's basically a few years in the late 50s in Greenwich Village and some young Americans are trying to make their way Right, so if you can tell me about who is in the book, because it, love is really at the center of it, but it's not an easy, comfortable, it's not romantic comforting love at all. Love. I mean, we should remember what Baldwin says in The Fire Next Time, that, you know, love is a battle, love is a growing up. And then Americans don't want to grow up. Again, they're dawdling in this protracted adolescence, as he calls it. Before we, I guess, talk about the novel itself, this broke off from Giovanni's room. There's something called ignorant armies, right? So those discrete texts tell us a great deal about the kind of power of love and the inability to love across certain chasms, certain, you know, fictional, mythological differences, right? Who's in a book? The book begins with, and is haunted by this wonderful character named Rufus Scott. Rufus dies, I hope I'm not giving anything away, by the end of book one. But he's such a powerful he has, character. He's he, a musician. Yes. 
he is a lover. He's this kind of walking blade. He sort of walks through New York City, so charged and kind of makes the city also look like this incredibly dangerous, overwhelming, but also seductive thing. Mm -hmm. So he's in the first part of the book, and somehow the book, then as you say, he he actually dies in this Christ-like, really terrible way. First of all, says at some point hints at that. But he stays in the book throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, Rufus is Sonny from Sonny's Blues. Rufus is the artist figure who Baldwin's always concerned with, the black male figure who is trying to ask say something, as Baldwin says, vomit up his anguish through the music that he's doing. And like Sonny, he goes under, literally. In this case, we should remember that Rufus Scott is based on Eugene Worth, Baldwin's best friend, who threw himself off the George Washington Bridge at the age of 24 because he couldn't imagine himself an outcome in that point in mid-century America being successful, being having a life, not having to turn to drugs, whatever. These are really smart men, young men, who kept bumping up against the limits of what the society would allow them to do. He was black, and the water was black. He lifted himself by his hands on the rail, lifted himself as high as he could, and leaned far out. The wind tore at him, at his head and shoulders, while something in him screamed, Why? Why? He thought of Eric. His straining arms threatened to break. I can't make it this way. He thought of Ida. He whispered, I'm sorry, Leona. And then the wind took him. He felt himself going over, head down. The wind, the stars, the lights, the water all rolled together. All right. He felt a shoe fly off behind him. There was nothing around him. Only the wind. All right, you motherfucking God almighty bastard. I'm coming to you. The whole novel takes place in New York City and then a bit in France. And Rufus is from Harlem. Mm -hmm. And we encounter him first sort of around Cornelia Street and sort of... We encounter him first in, you might remember, getting hands on him in the 42nd Street theater. One of the theaters is no longer there, right? And so he has nowhere to go. And he's terribly hungry. So the scene at the beginning of the text, the novel, has Rufus, the first 81 pages, I think, 88 pages, has Rufus walking through... The city, in a way that's definitely cinematic, but also incredibly tragic, in the sense that he's peddling his ass. He's been, we'll later find out that he's been gone for a month. No one knows where he is. And he's trying to say in his music, one of the reasons he's gone away, he's, again, just bumping up against the limits of his own life. But he's asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And so when the book goes into the second half, we greet Leona, the southern white girl, the Miss Anne of mid-20th century times, who's attracted, who's leaving the South because she's lost her child and has been abused by her husband. And so she comes up town with Rufus. And they, what is interesting about that first scene, Uli, you might remember when they have sex in the balcony, right? Yes. And there is, Baldwin's language is charged and sedimented with all the history of the country, right? I mean, the venom is described as his sperm. The lovemaking, my students and folks who read it think it's rape. It is not rape there. He calls her the rape woman later on when Rufus 
becomes violent. And so we're dealing with a man, a young man, in Rufus Scott, who is lost to himself because of race in America, because of the limits of his imagination, right? Because he can't take care of himself. And so his desire for Leona, I mean, he says at one point in the first part, you might recall, that, you know, he didn't want to hear her stories because all stories aren't pretty, right? Let me ask you something about yeah. this, the limits of his imagination. Yeah. But Rufus imagines himself, of course, in ways that are totally not hemmed in by anything. No, his imagination is not limited. The problem is this, but the limits of what society will allow his imagination right. to grow and right. to kind of accommodate so his imagination. Com so right? it is a really modern book in the sense of a modern being person, a man in America, happens to be in New York, who claims this right to say, I'm going to imagine my life on my own terms. Yeah. And then he's hemmed in by all these other things. Yeah. So Leona is one of the ways in which he's hemmed in. It's also an opening because it's an absolute it's so violent and fraught, but there's some weird opening. Or I think Baldwin always seems to say there is something that could happen here. Yeah. And it turns out that they had to learn something else. Right? They didn't know enough. And so if you think about, if you can begin for a second, to take seriously the epigraph that Baldwin uses by Henry James, a person despite what you think of James, politically. The epigraph of the book, you know, talks about these unprecedented monuments, right? So what's the epigraph? The epigraph, I know by heart, but I'm going yes. to just turn to it really quickly. It says they strike one above all as giving no account of themselves in any terms already consecrated by human use. To this inarticulate state, they probably form collectively the most unprecedented of monuments, abysmal the mystery. I love that line. Abysmal the mystery of what they think, what they feel, what they want, what they suppose themselves to be saying. That's why there's an opening and a closing, right? Because they're, they're trying to find each other. So if you think about Kaz and Richard, the Upper West Side couple. So this is another couple. Yeah, so Richard was the teacher, so now he's... The teacher. Sort of, he seems really old in the book, and he's about all of 35 or something like yeah. that. But he's a professional. He's a, he was the teacher of... Vivaldo. Vivaldo as a writing student, yeah. and Cass is his wife. So they are kind of the more established white couple, and these young guys come in and out of their lives. In some ways. I mean, they're not at the center of the novel at all, I don't think. I mean, so that's one way to describe right. it, but I don't think that's exactly... Baldwin is laying bare something about the kind of impoverished quality of marriage as it says stuff like that, frankly, right? There's something bereft about it, something arid about that landscape. And so Richard, who was Vivaldo's literary teacher, Vivaldo's struggling with his own book, and then here... Here, Richard writes a potboiler, a sellout book, which Vivaldo was like, wait a minute here, right? And so that goes alongside his correspondence with him selling out with the two kids and the Upper West Side place, but also the beginning of Chelsea, you might remember. That's where the first house was, and then brushing up against a changing neighborhood. So if you think about the staging that happens about the kids of Richard and Cass confronting and fighting with those Puerto Rican kids and black kids, right? And how little is spoken about that and how... So this is a white couple and they have, they are sort of painted as liberal, white, they have a somewhat bohemian group of friends. Yeah. Rufus is a friend. Rufus' sister, Ida, becomes a friend. After the death. Rivaldo becomes a friend. So there are people going in and out and then their kids are attacked by a group of either Puerto Rican or black kids in their neighborhood. The neighborhood is changing. Mm -hmm. They try to... I thought they tried to almost not make sense of it. Yeah. And Ida, who's Rufus' sister, who comes into the story later, says they were black kids and they attacked these white kids. And then she doesn't really go on. So 
Baldwin asked this question twice, what is happening here in the city, mm -hmm. in this great city mm -hmm. of New York, where mm -hmm. people are supposed to live together? Mm -hmm. The idea of living together doesn't quite work out. No, because there's no limit to what they think, what they feel, what they want, what they suppose themselves to be saying. Let me That's read you a quote thing. right here. Sure, sure, what you sure. just said, they're bereft of this arid landscape of mm -hmm. a marriage, or they don't know what they feel or mm -hmm. think. So here's Ida walking through the city. Ida strode past, seeming not to see them. She conveyed with this stride in her bright, non-committal face how far she felt them to be beneath her. She had the great advantage of being extraordinary. However she might bear this distinction, or however others might wish to deny it, whereas her smile suggested these people, the citizens of the world's most bewildered city, were so common that they were all but invisible. Nothing was simpler for her than to ignore or to seem to ignore these people. Nothing was further beyond them than the possibility of ignoring her, and the disadvantage at which they were thus placed, for which, after all, they had only themselves to blame, said something which Rivaldo could scarcely believe concerning the poverty of their lives. So there is a sense in Baldwin, he says over and over, white America is morally bankrupt. Yeah. It's bereft, it's not alive. And he, in his own career, he ends up having this really tricky place to fill where liberals like to have James Baldwin tell them how alive they are. Mm -hmm. So he becomes this person which doesn't get him a lot of love in the black community at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. But there are white people who want to sort of be in touch with black culture because it makes him feel alive. Mm -hmm. This is one of his great themes in this book, it seems. In this super vibrant city, people are walking around totally lifeless. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's not, Vivaldo was saying this about the uneasily, you know, and he has his own motivations for not liking Richard because he's in competition with him, right? But all of those people, including Jane, who is Vivaldo's older girlfriend, but Vivaldo himself, who goes uptown to have sex in Harlem to have sex with, you know, prostitutes because he wants to escape. He doesn't want to deal with real life. He doesn't want to deal with growing up. And so what Baldwin is describing there is a certain kind of impoverished reality. Mm -hmm. Empty. Common. And they mean that in that way. It's, it's completely shady. He's a contemporary term. Because Americans are dawdling in this emotional kindergarten, right? So is, is this different? And what is different about Emerson saying 100 years before, people living lives of quiet desperation or Thoreau? Sort of 100 years before, people are always saying, America is not totally alive, which is funny. It's the most vivacious place in the world, right? His name is Vivaldo. Americans are sentimental. They're romantic. And that's why there's a difference. They're sentimental and romantic about a very bloody history. Uh-huh. A very bloody, an ongoing bloody history. A city like New York, I mean, completely segregated. Baldwin calls Harlem occupied territory. Right? So if you think about it, that's the terrain we're navigating. So for me, I think what Baldwin is trying to do in another country is kind of hold up a mirror to America and say, guy, listen, can we just be honest about this right so you, here? So you have the first character who determines this book, which is a, one of the great feats of a novel, and mm -hmm. his absence will structure the whole book. Absolutely. And people live out this kind of dead man who's living with them as mm -hmm. a ghost. Right? He's really haunting them. So what happens with Vivaldo and Rufus's sister after this in the second and third part of the novel? I mean, I guess I want to start a little bit earlier on. I mean, because when... You might remember from the novel, you certainly remember from the novel, that, you know, Rufus comes back, they have drinks, Kaz, Richard, and they give him $5, and he's been missing for a month, and he's like, I'm going uptown to see 
my family and never arrives. Instead, it takes his own life. And so when Ida calls and she's excited that he's around and then they're like, don't worry, he might turn up. And when she walks into the living room, right, there's something on her face. You might remember, let me keep saying that, I'm sorry. Where Kaz is observing her, enjoying the attention she's getting. Tall, vivacious black woman, his younger sister. And she says to them, you mean you let him leave? So the disposability of black life, who are these people in the Bohemians in the village? With this man who lives uptown, right? And trying to cut his teeth as an, an artist, but has to do it downtown. That kind of uptown, downtown dichotomy that Baldwin treats throughout his entire career, it seems to me. And something about their inability to kind of save his life in that moment, not to hold on to him, to call his family. But but what so, is that question when she says, you let him leave? Because it's an indictment of liberal America. That they didn't take care or actually even ask him what is going on. They the, said, give yes. him five dollars and let it go on. Yes. And, see you later. and so there's a scene right after that where he goes and he's peeing in the head, as they called it back then. And he's adding his stream. It's a kind of just an illusion of foreshadowing to his own death. But he's adding his stream of urine, piss to thousands of others Baldwin says, and Baldwin quotes was on the all the kind of awful things on the wall, right? Which is racially charged, homophobic, that kind of stuff. And that's how we end that chapter. Right. And so what that is, is you're seeing how awful Americans can be to each other, right? How we can't at all deal with the kind of, someone's interior life like Rufus, right? Or United for that matter. So I guess that's the first indictment of I mean, here is, can I fix your drink? Can I take your coat? That New York nonsense. They do drink and smoke a lot in this book. Oh my God, do they ever. <laughs> but they also, they do it differently, right? So either they're bars, but in that moment, you open on to the kind of Upper West Side or Chelsea living room with a bar over here. You can see it. It's like right. Mad Men, right? But different. I think what Baldwin is staging there, just to go back quickly, and that's where Ida meets Vivaldo, I think, I mean, as a grown person, you know, right. is how arid that is, how empty it is. Right, because Americans are pretending that, you know, there's not this huge elephant in the room called race. And so Bohemians can pretend that, oh, we're all so good. And so I think what happens to Vivaldo and Ida as the book goes on can only be in the best understood. They don't really arrive at each other because they have to learn something else, right? They keep doing that. But also what happens with Ellis and Ida is kind of interesting, the TV producer. So Ida wants to have a career as a singer, sort of, and slowly is both being encouraged and discovers in herself there's something she would want to do. So she takes up Rufus's, let's say, aspiration in a way. But then Alice comes in, who's a white producer, and says, I'll make you into a star. I mean, he's like a kind of, you know, there's Harvey Weinstein (laughs) of the time. (laughs) What happens to Ida and Vivaldo is interesting to me because that first moment when she sings at the bar with Rufus's old mates, right? They're really seeing her as a Jezebel, as someone who's betraying the race by both being with all these white folks. Right? So explain to me as a newcomer to this country, that what's the Jezebel? What's the figure of that? Well, this is kind of hyper-sexualized black woman. Right. And this is the bandmates of Rufus yes. who see her and say, you are kind of selling out to white fantasies of black sexuality as a woman here. Yeah, and so it's not your talent, I guess, you're on the stage. And so if we think about just how the first book, the first book one of the novel, is really all about Baldwin trying to say, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And the same thing that happens in the short story, Sonny's Blues, this kind of, what happens to black men in a country ruled by white male authority? That's what Baldwin's concerned about. This is the question we started out. This is a different kind of love.
love this not do you love me in a romantic fun let's go on a date kind of way i mean it's, it's something else right do you oh see God, me yes. do you recognize me do you acknowledge me can i actually in being loved be myself so it's very much it's about opening your eyes on the world it's an existential question baldwin is not simply a race right which has always been dismissed as right baldwin is asking an ontological question how do you get here and how do you get to this planet and survive it and then he i think he says how do you survive it and how do yeah. you survive by not seeing the things in front of you yeah. there's so much in this novel where he notices things it's such a great urban novel yeah. and he says we live in the world and somehow people find ways to not see anything in front of them. Yeah. So I think it's what you're saying, ontological on that level. It's not, the key is maybe not race. The key is the ability to be blind to reality. No, it's being blind to the invisibility of race, I think. The kind of taking for grantedness of whiteness, right? So when Baldwin says, and this you mentioned a quote by Emerson, it's the same. I want to argue for the specificity of what the Baldwin name project, right? When he says to Faulkner in 57, Faulkner, William Faulkner, who says he's going to go out into streets in 56 in Life magazine and shoot Negroes because integration is throwing those poor Southerners off their emotional balance. We need more time. Baldwin always say, how long do you want for your progress? And Baldwin says in his essay to Mr. Faulkner, it begins that any real change, he says, implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gave one an identity. The end of safety. And at such a moment, unable to see and not daring to imagine what the future will now bring forth, one clings to what one knew or dreamed that one possessed. Yet, it is only when man is able, without bitterness or self-pity, to surrender a dream he has long possessed, that he is free. He has set himself free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. The end of safety. And the safety is an innocence. The safety is the need for black forgiveness or racial forgiveness. The safety is a certain kind of racial heroism that which you find in films by Stanley Kramer, like The Defiant Ones, or what you find in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the Heat of the Night that Baldwin takes up in the Delphi's work, where Americans are dragging, literally yoking together Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis and dragging them kicking and screaming into the white American nightmare. And so Baldwin is saying that the price of the ticket he keeps talking about, to get to the New Jerusalem, to get to that place where, you know, he says, you can trust you, and I can trust me, and we can trust each other, to get to that place after such a bloody history, after centuries of not looking, or refusing to look at the very thing that made this country, which is black bodies and black labor, that then become inconvenient, and have to be controlled in the occupied territories we talked about before, or by snuffing out the Black Power Movement. For instance, so there's right? two things going on. There's the one part, I'm going to separate Baldwin, which is wrong. And let's say, on the level of the novel, he wants to say, I want to derealize or alienate reality for you because you're not seeing it. And he says this everywhere about what an artist is supposed to do. He said, I'm supposed to make things real to you because you think they're real, but they're not real at all. You don't even notice anything. That's the first job. And then you're saying... But it's a specific job in America. It is to actually deprive people of the comfort of thinking, my innocence protects me. Mm -hmm. And I think Baldwin does two things. He doesn't just say, you guys want to be innocent of this knowledge of your own atrocious history. It's actually damaging you profoundly. That's the second part you want to be innocent It's mutually impoverishing. And this, I think, is a a part where Baldwin is really interesting because this is where people connect to 
white liberals and say, oh, he's making us feel kind of bad about ourselves. But it's, and then and they, they forget like the second part. They like it a little bit because mm-hmm. it's a little bit sort of Christian self-castigating, oh, you know, I've sinned a bit. Self-flagellation. But the next step is really, really hard because you don't know where you're going to step into. Yeah. The new Jerusalem is not clear. It's not, this is the great you have to keep harmony. Right? And I think the book, Another Country, there aren't really many landing places where you feel this is comfortable. This is okay. They figured it out. I mean, there are scenes in this book that are so hard to take because they say things to each other. We think, I can't believe I'm listening into this. Mm-hmm. And so Baldwin gives everybody a place to say things that are so uncomfortable that the other person basically, I mean, the responses are varied, but there's very little room to respond. Yeah, I mean, what is interesting about this novel, I think Baldwin, as you say, and this happens in Giovanni's room too, there's a real dimensionality to all the characters. No one is dismissed as being, maybe Jane is <laughs> dismissed as of Baldwin's old wife, older partner. Let's take that scene in the bar, right? Where it's Rufus and Jane at the bar, and Jane says that word. Are you threatening me? I think that's oh, what she right. says, right? And then the bars turn around and the fight ensues and they almost... So there's a bar and there's a bit of a weird sort of regular tension. It's awkward. There's some sexual tension between them. And then she says this word and as if something is... She screams fire and... Open up and everything turns... But no, so what she does is to leverage this thing called American womanhood, white American womanhood, by simply saying... Right. Are you threatening me to a black man? Right. And so in terms of what people see and don't see, what they see is that we have to protect the sexuality of this poor damsel in distress, right? Who I think becomes the figure for white America. Always. So it's not it's just... One of them. One, yeah, of them. Yeah. one of them, to be sure. But so then in the bar scene, there's a terrible fight. Yes. So both Rufus and Rivaldo barely make it out alive. Yeah. They get dragged home. Yeah. And then how is it resolved? Do they actually sit down and process all of this? <laughs> no. I mean, I think he calls her a slug or something else, maybe. Um, but you know she feels bad there's some kind of contriteness but they will all want to go to St. Vincent's no longer here um, and he's like no it's not going to look good it'll be a lot of who shot John is what he Rufus says. said that he's yeah, like, he's he's can't, I can't walk in as a black man with a white woman and I just got beat up in a bar because she felt threatened that's no, not going to go well it's not going to go well it's going to be a lot of who shot John so let's just handle this right here please you know what I mean and Vivaldo that liberal good heart my god doesn't want to see, oh, what are you talking about? And he says, oh, I don't want to hear any more of that, which goes along with him not wanting to hear the stories of the characters in his own novel, but that the story of black life. He's tired of it. He wants to invent his own characters. So here you have Rufus again. That's what leads, I think, to Rufus's madness. What part now? This of not being... Of not being able to communicate with the people you imagine to be your friend. Yes, and because the whole first part of the novel hinges on that. Vivaldo really wants to believe Rufus is his best and closest friend and really yeah. shares everything. But yeah. there's something they don't share. Vivaldo believes he's white, and that might mean yeah. something. Yeah, That's but what Rufus wants Vivaldo to acknowledge and know that he's a white man. Yeah, and all yeah. the sentimental associations that accrue around that fiction, right? And so if you think about the scene that happens the next morning after Leon is at home, and Leon is in the kitchen cooking, and Rufus is in the bed naked, and he comes and he gets up, and there he is, you know, all naked, you know, and he's showing off, but Rufus's own bizarre reaction to Leona. He's worried about him, of course, but it's also... And Rufus says something about, are you jealous? That if she's with me, she's beneath you? There's a whole 
naughtiness, thorniness to the that part of the novel that's precisely about the Jamesian epigram, right? Mm-hmm. That no one really knows what they're doing with each other. And so in terms of the one-to-one that might happen, you know, me and you talking and right. know each other, everything else stands in the way. All of that kind of unexamined history, which is also contemporary reality, is not taken up at all. When I think about Baldwin and his amazing archive now online of all of his interviews, there's something, I don't know how to say this, difficult to watch because there's so many places where he's on stage and he has to explain himself over and over. And maybe there are moments when he understands a little bit the interlocutor and they understand each other, but he's saying, it's incomprehensible to you what I'm trying to do and who I am. And he keeps on having to say that. And in the book also, Another Country has Rufus as a person who also doesn't know himself because maybe you don't know yourself when you're young. There's that part of Baldwin as well, I think he puts that in. Mm -hmm. He has these other characters. It's interesting what they work out because in a different place, literally another country, although that's not what it refers to, they're also not totally clear who they are. But Eric is the so Eric is Christ-like that, figure. Of so tell us who Eric is in this book. Eric is... Brad Pitt uh, of the, another country. Well, let's not diminish <laughs> Eric in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Eric has a shock of red hair, which is a halo, to my mind, right? From Alabama, right? Who grows up, you know, falling in love with a janitor. It's, you know, this young black man, you know, um, in a certain kind of love. He knew that something's stirring inside him. And then he falls in love with Leroy. We did a conversation part of the year of James Baldwin with the wonderful Irish writer Colin Twabeen and Jake Gyllenhaal, of all people. And Jake got that. That, for him, the relationship between Leroy frustrated, unrealized... With 17-year-olds in Alabama at that yes. point. So they're sort of walking around and the town starts talking. Yeah. And then Leroy says, this has got to stop. Yeah. And Eric says, why? And Leroy says, because I will die yes. if this continues. Yes. As Eric's, you know, Tony friends are driving by and mocking them, right? But Eric is not willing to risk everything. And you might remember, so Rufus is this character who's haunting the entire novel. Eric comes toward the end, and Eric has connections to everybody, including Rufus, who Rufus treats like a woman, you might recall, right? Um, so Eric's kind of feminization on the part of Rufus, not making love to him in a certain way that Rufus always regrets, Kaz and Eric get together. Right, you know, Kaz is the wife of Richard. Of Richard, yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of a, a wrench thrown in. So we said, oh, we have now a gay character who's an American who left for Paris and he comes back. And then he has this amazing affair with a married woman who feels her marriage is arid, libelous, and dead. Yeah. Her sellout husband who made the big novel. So there's actually something interesting that Baldwin gives you this character and then undoes it. Well, he doesn't undo it. What he's doing is thinking about the vast interior life and contradictions that turn up. And so Eric... What does game really mean is what he's saying, right? I mean, Baldwin, his own sense of homosexuality and sexuality is much more expansive than those categories that he's always railed against. You know, for him, it's tribal, gay and straight. And so the ways in which desire, when people are attracted to each other, is not simply sexual, right? It can go there as well. But what might it mean for Ruth and Valdo to actually have a moment of encounter that's sexual that's more about a human connection? That's not, I'm gay forever. And do you think there, because this is the book from 1962, yeah. that homosexuality at this point, it's illegal in parts of the country, etc., mm-hmm. is very threatened. It's kind of radical that it's out there. All these things are very radical, and the book was received, was a big bestseller, but got criticized by many people on the far right, mm-hmm. far black left, mm-hmm. about the gay theme, actually. Mm-hmm. It was kind of interesting. That homosexuality is a key for saying there's another way of thinking of love that it also opens up. It doesn't fall into these categories that we now think, mm-hmm. oh, so this is Eric, he likes men. No, he has an affair with Cass. 
which is very deeply meaningful to Cass. Yes. As she rearranges her life, maybe in productive ways, actually, I tend to think. Yeah. I mean, so we have to get up. It's not homosexuality. Right. This is, Baldwin yes. didn't believe in that at all. Yes. I mean, he would not. It, for him, it was an intensely private matter. The only Americans were concerned with this, right? So if we think about... He does have this very famous quote, though, when he's interviewed on the BBC or something. He says, you're a gay black man from America. He says, I hit the jackpot. Yeah. So I mean, at some point later in his life, he no, gets a little there, there bit more easy around There are many James Baldwin. Let's be yes. clear about James Baldwin's rhetorical slice. There are many baby right? James Baldwins. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they get all those strangers. I mean, that's a term he uses for him. All those strangers named Baldwin. I'm someone who has to contextualize any Baldwin utterance, right? Because he is someone who is so rhetorically dynamic and adept. Given the moment he was in, he would just go for it. And it's not that he was lying. He was just, he can really work a room. And so, I mean, not going to laugh. He didn't mean that in the same way. And you want to go back to saying, so it's not that what I would just call homosexuality is another key to the novel. The novel doesn't have a key like this. I think it actually, the amazing thing about another country is that it puts these questions in front of us and then changes the question a bit when you just think you're getting closer to the answer. And there's another question behind it or next to it, and they're interlinked. So one thing won't solve it. Mm-hmm. which is a book written in the late 50s, early 60s. This is in the middle of the civil rights movement. This is before the feminist movement, before you know any kind of gay rights movement. I also think it's such a slice of American times, what the country is trying to work out. Mm-hmm. So homosexuality is in the key. So what happens with Eric and Cass then after they have their... They talk about it, nothing's really resolved, and they had to learn something else. I mean, what Eric was able to do... For me, in that rain and the mat, it's a beautiful scene. Yes, it was very So then, that's a cinematic thing you're so talking. So Vivaldo about. then spends the night in some kind of strange mode, and then it rains and rains and rains and, and it rains, rains, and then he puts on his rain hat and coat, and then he goes to meet at the lobby of the Met. And Cassidy talk in the middle of the museum, mm-hmm. have this conversation because her husband is now found out, and then they move on. With yeah. <laughs> and we don't know what happens. Yeah. Some but it's a beautiful thing. I feel like I'm, I can go from Cornelia Street to wherever they are. 254th Street, I'm with them. Yeah. You're with them. And, and we should know that's, that's Baldwin's terrain, that village. I mean, he lived on 81 Horatio Street. That's his world. And so he was able to describe it really well. And I think what he's trying to figure out is, what are these bohemians trying to do with their life, right? And it's about, if we understand that, you know, in the kind of field, the, the kind of theater of the racial battle, that between white and black, between, you know, subject and subjugated, that can only be violent. That in this book, they're trying to meet these unprecedented monuments. They're trying to meet each other somewhere where there's some kind of human connection that's not characterized by violence. And instead, we get an awful lot of violence. An awful lot of steps towards a certain kind of reconciliation and then a retreat because something else has to be figured Can you say something about France? Why doesn't Baldwin just go to France, stay in France, and opt out? And I'll give you another quote. <laughs> You're going to contextualize the quote for me because, I, as you said, Baldwin has really apt quotes. I love America more, more than, than any, any other, other country, country in this world. world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Mm-hmm. So this is another love for America. Mm-hmm. And he's in Paris, and then he comes back, just like Eric comes back from France, because he feels if he stayed there for longer, he would have become an exile or something, Mm -hmm. and he wants to return. What is this relationship of Baldwin to America as this thing, that he's in and out geographically, but he's in America? And he also says another point, Europeans have no understanding whatsoever at all about Americans. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think Baldwin, he was asked the same question you just posed about, why not escape? He said, what? 
can I escape? Will the French give me political asylum here? And once he just wanted to get out of the U.S. because he felt like he would be murderous or take his own life. Do you recall Baldwin tried to kill himself three times? Really? Three times. While abroad, three times. And so I think people forget that or maybe don't know it. Because it's not part of the kind of grand. No, I don't. I don't right? think everyone knows in this family. No, I mean, he's become this kind of a bit of a not a prophet, but kind of a wise counsel to America. And it's a very easy, lazy thing to think about an important figure like that. Well, another country is not actually a wise or easy book. It is a very challenging book. It's challenging and sloppy. But I, I want to get back to what you're saying. What you're quoting from, I believe, is the creative process and Baldwin's injunction that is only artists that can give us any real sense of what it's like to be in America, not the preacher, not the politician, none of that stuff, right? And so the kind of witnessing that's what he calls the kind of frightening assignment for black artists then is that we're dealing all the time, he says, in the artist circle for integrity of speech he gave with the community church here in New York in 1963, in April, I believe, where he says we're dealing all the time with the most illiterate people we have ever encountered, we're ever likely to encounter, at least in the 20th century. Didn't account for Donald Trump and company. Because <laughs> how could he? It's how he's not a prophet. Because American power can shift and morph into even more kind of ghastly things, right? And so, and he said, people who are lettered in the language of the heart. And he doesn't mean love again. He, he means lettered, lettered in the language, language of, the heart. of the heart. So what does that mean? It means human connection, that I'm obligated to you, you're obligated to me. That you and I are related. I could be that landlord. I could be that police officer, is what he says. And all of my life, since we're all going to die, he says, how do we achieve our death? Having a certain kind of moral adulthood is what he's asked for. And what do you... You, you know said, what I think about He that? said this a couple of times, and it's throughout his work, to said America ought to grow up. Yeah. We behave like adolescents, yeah. actually, white America mostly. Yeah. What does it mean to grow up then? What would be a more sincere, genuine connection? Because... And I'll give you one more quote before okay, I stop okay. with the quoting. Okay. So this is from the fire next time, I think. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the others, do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. So this yet unachieved country could be completed by the very few people who have a bit of maturity in them. So yeah. what is maturity? Maturity is looking at the history of all created unflinchingly, without any need for romance, any need for innocence. The kind of the need that turns up all over American literature from the Puritan times until now of this kind of native loneliness that Toni Morrison talks about, the colonial anxiety of all Americans, this new experiment called America. And so which somehow gets away from the fact that this country was founded on genocide and enslavement. And so that's the history that we don't want to deal with at all, right? And so I think historical maturity, I know historical maturity or moral adulthood, means that we can't have any cross-racial buddy films or any feel-good movies or any, you know, big spreads. Were you going to take those movies away from us? I would love to if I had the power. What should we have instead? Okay. Uh, real confrontations about okay. the life that we're all leading, maybe? I mean, we can, some shoot them up, it's fine. Some action films are fine. But so I just need. saw Widows. 
I'm going to see Widows 2, <laughs> uh, which is not getting a lot of attention right now. People yes. are going. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because I think it delivers what you want. It is ultimately not a harmonious buddy film. No, I, I imagine that's not the case. It's Steve McQueen, right? Steve McQueen. But, you know, no <laughs> he's not making so, a dent at so all. So you're saying it's not easy reconciliation of a buddy film, which is a black cop and a white cop sort of driving around and solving crimes in America. So what is the difficult love to get to. And in another country, no one ends up being in a... But well, they're trying. Scene. They're trying. I know, but they Bavalo and I are trying. And they end up in real places. Because they think they're white. Mm. And then Ida thinks is still dealing, like Rufus with, with the contemporary reality of what black life is at that point in the century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no wishing that away over, you know, whiskeys or, you know, bourbon in a village bar. A lot of bourbon. Yeah, a lot. Okay, you're being a little purist now. You know, but it kills. No, I I like it. I actually. I don't like bourbon that much, but I mean, I actually think there's something about the. No, I think actually Baldwin is saying something that the country is narcotized. We all constantly we have to be drunk. I mean, in some ways, I don't think it's incidental that just because he drank a lot, people have to drink an enormous amount because this is actually touching on the most difficult things on human connection that is overlaid with. This fantasy and mythology of race. Yeah. So maturity would be what? So I want to get... Okay, maturity. you have to give me a script for a better buddy movie. Uh, uh, no, I, let's forget the buddy movies for a second. That's not going to save us, really. I really wish it could, you know, but that kind of cross-racial fraternity has to be banished. Because they're so bad, first of all, the level of plot and script. I'm like, can I write them? Are you going to do them? <laughs> but think about how, how poor that is, how risk-averse a film like that is, how juvenile it is. The need, for instance, the Green Book, that new film just now. You didn't see Green Book, thank God. <laughs> he's whispered, no way. So it's Mahershala Ali, and he's a musician, I think. A Jamaican musician, speaks eight languages, and he's being driven around by this racist Italian to the south as his bodyguard, and they come to some kind of rapprochement, they get to know each other as some synecdoche, some you know, metonym for some surrogate for the American racial nightmare. Okay. That we got that movie done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so instead, why not have a really kind of, you know, fraught, uneven, you know, f- frayed, jagged, real relationship being staged? I mean, that would be so interesting. If you think about Baldwin's love for cinema, right? Right. What it might look like of some of the scenes here, that this is going to be adapted, I think, I can't say any much more than that. If this novel is staged... Another country. If this is staged cinematically, what would that screenplay look like? Like, what would... the scene interesting what you just said. It's ragged, <laughs> open-ended, which is, of course, what human relations are. And Absolutely. we actually think we make up, we settle down. And in some ways, I think the book has all these couplings yeah. and couples. And then Baldwin kind of says, yes, and people are in relationships and couples... Then they have other relationships. They may get back together with the previous one. It may not work out. They may end up being friends or never speak to one another again. Rufus is no longer alive. He's in relationship with all of them. That's not even a reason not to be in relationship in a way. That even the suicide, which is terrible. So what you're saying, the raggedness of human relationships would be a more honest way of dealing with this. And I think this is what this book is so great on, that you're with the characters and you're realizing they're actually evolving. Not into something neat. Oh, finally, we got this down. And the next thing, and the next thing. So there's a kind of openness toward the end. Yeah. Eric is the one we don't really quite know. And actually, I read the last part of this last sentence of the book, mm-hmm. and I actually read this to somebody. I thought this was incredibly moving. And I was kind of 
sobered up afterwards when I read something else by Baldwin. So the last sentence of the book is, he's landing, and then he landed in New York, he's coming from Paris, and he says, then even his luggage belonged to him again. And he strode through the barriers, more high-hearted than he had ever been as a child, into that city, which the people from heaven had made their home. And I thought it was so moving and so beautiful, and don't we all want to be in New York City? Then I remembered the New York City that he's describing in this book, mm-hmm. which is terrifying and destroys people, basically, all these dead people walking around. And then somewhere else, Baldwin says, yeah, white people, they thought they're the people from heaven. They actually came and thought this, so I thought, this is a terrible indictment of New York City it's in the last sense, which I thought initially was so beautiful. <laughs> sorry. So, <laughs> sorry no, I thought, no, oh, don't me. we all want to move to New York City? This could be the slogan for New York City. Come to New York City. The, oh, which the people from heaven had made their home. I didn't think you were this romantic. <laughs> totally. I was basically thinking, I want to be here too. <laughs> no, Eric is, is like coming. He's an actor who got a gig on Broadway, I think he does, right? Or, yes. Yes, he has a gig on Broadway. And so they were turning and he was going to join him. So he was just terrified, you know, because they have a safe life outside of this really dangerous place called America. And so that's Baldwin's indictment. This right. fictional place, yes. right? But I think this was great that I was so fooled by it for a moment that, oh, this is so heartwarming. He comes and meets his lover at the thing. And then you think, after I just read this entire book, it's not that easy. There's nothing that easy. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not neat and tidy at all. I think that's what makes Baldwin, I keep coming back to Baldwin because of that. Like, it's exactly just like life. And so Let me hear a little bit. So this book was a big success. This really established Baldwin mm-hmm. as a major novelist. Mm-hmm. So it's it sold a huge amount of copies. It got reviews, some good, some bad. What did it do for him? What does he do in the 60s after this? Well, right immediately after this, in 63, in May, he's on the cover of Time magazine. We should remember that it's Fire Next Time that makes him a real success. Not this book so much. Is that right? Fire comes out in The New Yorker in November of 1962. And so I think it's a combination of that, but Fire is the one that makes him a real success. And, of course, this was good, too, but it was, as you mentioned before, not wholly embraced by all sides, right? So Baldwin engages in an electorate tour for the Congress for Racial Equality, was helping going south before that in 57 when he gets back, and he becomes a reluctant spokesperson for black America in the moment of the civil rights movement, right? If you think about Medgar, Martin, and Malcolm, dead. So that, the 60s involves him talking to Bobby Kennedy and just really advocating for Americans, turns up on television everywhere, give speeches all over the country, and after, you know, trying to have American face its own reality. It's a failed project, ultimately. And you're saying at the end of, toward the end of his life, he gives an interview and says, I'm a broken record. No, because before we move on to that, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is chronologically, like, so if you think about the 60s, as his, and it is his most successful time, by the end of it, he's depressed because of all those marquee assassinations. And he says, they're killing my friends. Mm-hmm. For no reason that makes any sense. And so he has to leave the country. He goes to South of France, where he buys his house. And he's absolutely depressed. And he writes No Name in the Street. No Name in the Street, that memoir, that book, that memoir, in which it's devastating. What he says there is that, you know, we're basically the walking monuments of our history. So we think about, we use that as a way to go back to another country. Briefly, there's a section that's toward the second half of that book length essay, No Name in the Street, which is part memoir, mostly memoir. And he's talking about Faulkner again, right? And Faulkner meaning Nancy's forgiveness. And he said Faulkner is just trying to recuperate a history without coercion, without violence, right? He wants to get a romantic return. Oh, let's forget about all that. 
<laughs> and this society is never due as a bombing sense, right? And so what Wagner feels to realize is that for millions of people, millions of people, the speediest possible demolition of that history, meaning white history, American history, which he then says is oneself. That millions of people depend on that to save them from, not save in that kind of white savior way, to kind of dis- be done with the stinking prison, the shrieking graves in which America has placed them. That's what's at stake in another country. Mm-hmm. It's like the Fognerian, the white person who wants to keep going slow, but one that wants to hold on to, as Beecher Stowe likes to do, and he critiques in everybody's protest novel, you know, the horror, the horror of slavery, but let me hold on to whiteness. Right. You know, and so, like, literally what might it mean, and Morrison said this, who Baldwin said he trusted, as you know, I'm teaching a course on Baldwin and Morrison So Morrison right says this, is this in Playing in the Dark or somewhere else? Morrison says this all over, in Playing in the Dark to be sure, but all over the novels it's there, but she says it most explicitly about white supremacy in an interview with the most recently brought low, Charlie Rose. Yeah, right? I know this interview where she says, you're asking the wrong question of me. Well, that's one of the interviews. Yeah, so the one of them is white supremacy, right? So when yeah. he says, and she always rephrases Charlie Rose's questions for 20 years, and she's adept at this. Um, the film coming out by, on her, by the way, we'll talk, we can talk about that maybe later. But what Morrison says is that there's something, the profound neurosis that no one talks about. It's pathology. It's clinical. It is crazy that you, one, a white person needs someone to be low in order for you to be tall. Right, she says, if you have to bring me to my knees to feel tall, then you are... What does that say about your internal world? And she says it's a mental illness. It's clinical, it is. And no one talks about it. The silence that we're all dwelling in, so... It's interesting, it's a little bit different vocabulary. Tony Morrison says it's a mental illness. People are insane in America to think they're superior. And she says, I've never felt inferior to anyone. Baldwin says... You're morally bankrupt, bereft. You're dead people walking through the streets of New York City. These mm-hmm. people are not alive at all. Mm-hmm. So these are two different things, actually. Well, well Morrison's able to say that because of what Baldwin did before, right? I mean, that's how, yes. I, yeah, that's yeah. how I think Baldwin clears the space for her, and Baldwin says he trusted her. But this to the point I'm suggesting about how that relates to the failure of those couples, those abysmal mysteries, these unprecedented monuments, to kind of come together is the idea that somehow, what is Vivaldo thinking about going uptown and having sex with those prostitutes? And he's confronted by one of the, the husband or the pimp of somebody, he's cheeky as all hell, because he believes he's white, right? And so there's something to me when Morrison says, and Baldwin says it's too, without the crutch of the nigger, I'm going to say the full word, Uli, please forgive me if this offends any of your fans, your listeners. Do you like yourself? Are you any good? I mean, these are real questions. I mean, what's your life like without the scapegoat of the immigrant, of the faggot? And Vivaldo, of course, wants to have another life, distances himself from his family, doesn't bring Ida home, but has his own... He actually feels superior at that moment, but otherwise he doesn't feel so superior to anything or anybody. Mm -hmm. Even Richard makes him feel not so great. No, I mean, so the extent to which people talk about the kind of Baldwin's essays are the best compared to the novels. We can talk about the formal successes or not. And it's a long, there are two different schools of thought about this in Baldwin's studies. But what is interesting to me is that Baldwin's always telling the same stories, it seems to me. It's interesting, yeah. He's always telling the same story, it seems to me. I mean, yes, the man, the conventions, and the conceits of the genre demand something else. He's not the best poet. But I do want to ask something about that. I think it's actually really important because we decide to talk about another country, yeah. a major novel. 
And I'm not really interested in the academic debates. Is this better or that better? That's I'm not giving medals <laughs> out to people's achievements. So maybe the essays are read more frequently. Mm-hmm. The novel does this in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think the novel does not, no novel gives us an argument. It actually allows us to witness, bear witness, and be drawn into the conflicts of life and not mm-hmm. resolve them. Mm-hmm. An essay has to resolve or it says it can't be resolved. There's no argument in a novel, really. So I think there is a difference, and I think... There's a difference. And that's why I'm interested that you wanted to talk about another country, because it opens up life to something else, to this unresolved dimension, without saying, oh, it's incomprehensible or confusing. They say, no, this is life. Baldwin keeps on saying, this is actually what life is, this unresolved part. Mm-hmm. Arguments do this in a different way. They're sort of standing in relation to life or something they're not in it or speaking mm-hmm. from within it. The reason I said that, Baldwin's first major essay published in... Zero Magazine in Paris in 1949, is everybody's protest novel, where he takes on the protest fiction of both Beatrice Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, but also Richard Wright, 1940 bestseller, his mentor, Native Son, which for him is the work of the sentimentalist in the part of Beatrice Stowe, which is, he says, <laughs> hides, it's a mask of cruelty, right? So American sentimentality, American sympathy hides that kind of cruelty, because it's liberalism, right? There's no change going to happen here. And then what Wright does is a kind of sociology. We're bigger, for instance, is disconnected from everybody else, where Bessie, his party gives him up. And so bigger is not at all connected to the community. So for him, Baldwin, bigger and Uncle Tom are connected. Right? One hurling exhortation, the other shouting curses. So I think it's something that what he's saying, right? And so we think about those two figurations of black maleness. You know, in one case by the daughter of a northern preacher, Protestant preacher in HBC, HBS, Harper <laughs> But Baldwin is saying, this is narcotic. It's a way for us to, you know, paper over right. just the real terror and nightmare of life in America, right? right? right. And so for me, that's him linking it or trying to make shape a story about that in Giovanni's room, which is about life and another country trying to figure it out without these categorizations. And he also says in both that and Many Thousands Gone, it's a line about categorization, that society, we're bound first without and then within by the nature of categorization, right? And society binds us through legend, myth, and coercion. And he's saying that we have to court our void, our unknown selves, the void, the interior space, right? Which he says is the only thing which will save us from the evil that's in the world. And it's a difficult process. It's, it's a very nearly, difficult process yeah. to say, to actually to sit with be oneself. in touch with the void or know there is a void even, which is something you don't want to know about yourself. You actually, there's certain things, it's not just, it's difficult to know that, but we want to deny there is such a thing in a way. But all the characters, not to interrupt you, but all the characters in a novel, that's what they're running from. Yes, yes. That void. And that Baldwin stages all that, is trying to work all of that out. And, but what stands in the way of all that is the fiction of marriage. And domesticity, right, right. the fiction of cross-racial fraternity. I mean, instead of real, unflinching, like, what's, do I, again, am I any good? Right, right, the Morrisonian... Right. These two lines right here, this is to me sort of whether we are alive or not. The great question that faced him this morning was whether or not he had ever really been present at his life. For if he had ever been present, then he was present still, and his world would open up before him. So he's asking himself, am I alive? Yeah. Which is sort of the question of that. Which I want to thank you. Uh, this has been fantastic. <laughs> and I hope to have you back on the podcast. So you've been teaching Baldwin in relation to other texts right now. And this is the book people should read in another country. 
What's the book once they're finished with this novel by Baldwin that you should read after this? I think they should start with this. Start with fire next time, give them what we're in. Yes. Okay. Thank, Thank you so very much. much. Thank you. <laughs>